We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of the block's analyst, Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Steven happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me today on what is a very special episode of The Scoop. I am joined for the first time in what feels like a century with Teo Leibowitz. He's co-hosting the show as we interview our very special guest, Leo Zhang. He's the research lab at Iterative Capital. Iterative touches many different corners of the cryptocurrency market, mining, OTC. They're an investor, but they kind of fly a little bit under the radar. Leo, a prolific researcher, writer, is here to explore the interesting, often overlooked mining landscape. There are tons of developments going on in in the market as it pertains to mining, as Leo will explore with us in a moment. The halvening is on the horizon. You have new firms coming to market, new firms coming to the U.S. market specifically. Leo, are you enjoying your cup of coffee? We got him whiskey, but he's a little jet lagged, so he he opted for the coffee. I'm enjoying the whiskey. Leo, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's it's actually a pretty interesting day to talk about mining since um, the first 100%. ever mining company is now. Canaan has uh, IPO'd. We could start there. Or we could start a little more high level about your background uh, and what you're doing at Iterative and what the firm's all about. Yeah, so... Uh, do you want to hear about Canon first or Iterative first? We'll, we'll get, we'll get to Canon. Because one is huge, we'll, one is very small. We'll get to Canon. We'll Let's start I mean, small, small and build up. Okay, okay. So the small one. So Canon IPO definitely, um, this is in the work for many years, as, as many of you know. Um, and uh, the size of the IPO has obviously changed a lot in the past, I think, a year, uh, a little more than a year since they the first uh, started playing with this concept. So, um, and obviously I think this is a, pretty big deal in, um, in terms of bringing this to uh, in front of traditional investors, to the general public, because not many people understand mining, and I, I still don't understand mining. <laughs> um, so these guys have been preparing for this move since 2015, and they've been consciously uh, shaping their company or the way they do business for this specific goal. Just for some reason, IPO is incredibly important for the founder, uh, NG, uh, NG Zhang. Um, 
So, I mean, Canon is, is, is perhaps the most OG mining company in the space, and so they definitely deserve to be the first company to get uh, listed. Well, let's talk a little bit about Iterative. When did the company come online? Um, for folks who may not be familiar with what you guys do, obviously touching OTC, mining, investing, um, what's the sort of underpinning story of, of the firm? Yeah, so uh, Iterative started in 2016. So the first fund was a venture fund. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so the first fund generated about 13x return in from 2016 to 2017. And obviously, it was the, there was the ICO wave. And so in mid-2017, we quickly realized that uh, there's something wrong with this much money going on in the space. And so we made the conclusion that at that time that this, this, is, this token mania is likely not going to continue. So we closed the fund, returned the capital to investors, everyone's happy, and we started a second fund that's dedicated to mining, um, which is the, the fund we're operating now. So uh, Iterate Capital, the investment side, the reason uh, people, you know, uh, our peers, uh, other investors in cryptocurrency space don't hear much uh, uh, from us or about us is because we only focus on mining. We do our own operations. We, you know, we go f uh, flip the switches ourselves, myself. <laughs> And, um, and, and, and that's it. We don't do venture investing anymore. We don't really invest in tokens. Um, we definitely don't participate in ICO or IEO anymore. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any appetite to return to venture down the line? And I say that because within even just the last six, six months or, or three months, we've seen a lot of venture funds raise large amounts of capital and looking to deploy that in kind of equity bets. Yeah. Um, so some of which were mining bets, which could give you an edge. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely see more and more mining operations or uh, so-called mining uh, related companies popping up, especially here in the US. But I think, uh, you know, here we're relatively late compared to, you know, many things that people in China have, have done uh, in the past couple of years or experimented and tried and, and failed. Um, and, and uh, regarding your question on venture, I don't think that's something, it may or may not uh, be the thing for us, but right now I think this, is, uh, this game is still very much a music chair. Um, and for us, we want to focus on our product, Azure, which I think is something that we will work on for many, many years to come, if not, uh, uh, it's the product for us. Hmm. How, how do you see the investing landscape changing over the next 12 months? And could there be a catalyst, catalyst that maybe put you into venture again? So I actually haven't really uh, thought about that. Um, so, I, I've been, so I myself is very much focused on mining and, uh, and there's already a lot of things going on uh, in the mining space on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I, I don't really, I'm not really fully subscribed to the uh, DeFi and, and all that stuff. So I'm certainly not very uh, psyched about you know what's going on in some of the the, the altcoins. So you know just given my my general preference and and um, uh, my my own appetite, I don't I don't think there's much uh, that really excites me um, that fits into the venture style uh, investing. Sure. Well, let's let's focus then on mining um, for a minute and the happening that is six months away at this point. You've written about uh, the relationship between the rainy season in China and, and mining operations. Uh, walk us through a little bit about what you were talking about. Yeah, so, <laughs> so this is actually um, a very 
peculiar phenomenon. So, so as as you know, you know, mining is very much. Um, it depends on where the cheap electricity is. Totally. And at, and and miners in China have started this operation, and specifically miners in Sichuan have started uh, playing with large scale mining since 2013. I think the first ever. Uh, full-scale uh, mining facility happening in Sichuan using hydropower. So there's a long history of um, uh, of large-scale miners situating in Sichuan for, for a variety of reasons. One, the electricity is insanely cheap, and secondly, uh, it's it's relatively remote, and people you know get away with a lot of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> and 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 you know the government is generally pretty friendly to you know the local government is generally pretty friendly to. Uh, uh, stuff that, as long as you claim it's some kind of innovation, and uh, politicians, they don't definitely don't understand, right? So, especially now. And if you bring jobs, probably. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you pay tax. Um, and and there's tons of uh, uh, extra electricity generated, especially between April to October, which is the rainy season in Sichuan. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of you, you know uh, additional electricity just go go to waste. So. You know, using that capacity is definitely a beneficial thing for the local uh, power plants and as well as for miners who are trying to make a profit. So that's why so much hash rate is concentrated in Sichuan. I think a conservative estimate uh, done by ver a variety of uh, researchers shows that it's probably around 50 to 60 percent of hash rate are in China. And the majority of that 50 to 60 percent are in Sichuan. Uh, and another pr province that also hosts a lot of hash rate is Yunnan, which is uh, to the south of Sichuan. Interesting. Well, from my perspective, I, I find it so interesting, and I wish we covered mining more from, from a business perspective because there are so many different things that can either impede as a, as a headwind or act as a tailwind, whether geography, government relations, all of these things can impact the business in a way that's unique compared to other firms that operate in this market. Yeah, for sure. And, and also- walk us, through, walk us through some of those. Um, as a mining operator, um, how do you navigate some of these things that could serve as an impediment? Yeah, and just to finish on that thought, sure, I, think, I think miners actually have a much bigger impact on uh, what's going on in the market than people realize. Yeah. And just because, because they're the only natural sellers and they need to sell. Right. There are some miners who, who, who even sell on a daily basis and just to capture that uh, USD, sorry, uh, fiat spread. And there are people who would only sell enough to cover the electricity and just hoard the rest. So, so miners definitely have a lot of coins. And once you have a lot of coins in a commodity game, you can play a lot of games. Um, and, you know, and, and it just naturally becomes more and more sophisticated as uh, when, when the coins disperse to other uh, arena. So, and just going back to a little bit, back to you know why uh, the mining industry is the way that it looks like today, uh, at least in terms of uh, geography. Um, so I think, uh, you know, uh, obviously there's this this history uh, there, and also um, mining manufacturers are largely based in Citra uh, sorry, not Sichuan in China as well. So shipping these machines to these locations is much much easier compared to shipping these machines, and you have to pay insurance, insurance, and potentially tariff. And maintenance becomes harder. You don't have the right people who are trained on, on uh, working with these machines once these machines leave um, uh, China. So, so most of the uh, large-scale miners 
um, who are still operating today, they, they only host the new latest gen machines in uh, China because they're easy to fix. And they ship uh, some of their older S9s or just half broken machines to uh, places like you know, Middle East or Russia where they, you know, they don't really care if the machines break as long as they get the cheapest electricity. So because so, many hash, so much hash power is concentrated in these regions, so mining cycles behave, are influenced by the climates of these regions as well. So April to October, as I mentioned, is the rainy season, and uh, from November to uh, March pretty much is the dry season. So this difference actually has a significant impact on the cost basis of, and the general capacity of miners. And so when miners actually plan around these times in the year to uh, think about you know, deployment schedule and when they buy new machines or sell some of their machines. And for sorry, facility owners, they, they plan around these schedules to um, when do they do market big marketing conferences to sure. attract all the suckers. Yeah, and even manufacturers, right? They plan around these times, you know, right before rain season to, to sell their late, late, latest gen machines. So there's always big conferences in Chengdu, which is the, you know, the uh, capital of Sichuan, um, or Shenzhen, which is the capital of hardware. Uh, in these, in uh, around you know March, April, uh, it's always very, very festive. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like an ancient ritual, <laughs> uh, and this is just a natural consequence of uh, how uh, concentrated uh, hash rate is, and and therefore the entire mining cycle is is influenced by uh, the weather, the climate uh, in that in those regions, right? So. Um, you know, every every year before April, there are a lot of new facilities will pop up and start marketing their their uh, uh, sites uh, to attract new miners. And there are tons of conferences before the rainy seasons, uh, and <laughs> and just for for. Uh, several reasons. Is there drinking Minor. that takes place? Is, is There's this... always drinking that takes place in China. That's great. Well, yeah. thanks. All the, right. the 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 timing there is quite interesting as well because the big move in the Bitcoin market this year was April 1st, right? Yeah, so there's a conspiracy theory that has been going on for several years that these large mining manufacturers are the ones who uh, uh, pop up the price or their groups and their investors pop up, would just you know pop up the price around that time because that's when they sell the machines. And when the Bitcoin price is high, they get to sell machines at a much, much higher premium. So they, so the reason that there's a, there's a, um, always a, a question that people like to ask uh, who are not you know very familiar with the mining market is that oh you know if if mining is so profitable why don't these manufacturers just mine themselves and why do they sell machines because they can sell at a significantly higher margin when they sell the machines to another sucker especially when the price is high um, so the kind of margin that you know the, the uh, th that they make on these late gen machines if the price is attractive enough is is pretty extreme um, it can can be as high as 6x of their production uh, production cost um, and they're not super expensive to, to produce unless they're using uh, you know 7 nanometer or 10 nanometer but anyways uh, this goes back to an earlier point uh, a point I made earlier that uh, mining machines inherently a, a derivative a very compl complex esoteric derivative and its price moves very sensitively uh, and its price is very sensitive um, uh, when price moves so the biggest beneficiaries when Bitcoin price you know, incre increases around April to uh, May or July, which is the period that they market their new machines, are these mining manufacturers.
And um, my understanding is that there's also quite an active secondary market for these machines. Can you yeah. tell us briefly what that actually looks like and where these trades take place? Yeah, absolutely. So um, a lot of these trades that actually happen uh, in Shenzhen, which is um, uh, which is the tax center of China. They're just it's it's a hardware capital of of China as well. A lot most of the manufacturers are based there. So secondary market is actually insanely active um, in over there, uh, which is something that people here don't really hear about uh, because you know machines they transfer hand they change hands all the time. Especially if when a miner with higher electricity, uh, who, for instance, someone's mining with S nines at, at seven cent after the rainy season, um, they're they're electricity is likely going to increase significantly and it's best for them to sell the machines at um, to, to another person and there are people who bought s9 at absolute lowest point in uh, January to April 2019 and these people they mined for a several several months and made absolute killing on these machines and uh, after May June uh, price increase they get to sell the s9 at the markup so they make money, they basically mine with s nice for a period of time for free, and then they get some from selling the machines. And, and again, the, this, this interesting phenomenon has to do with people don't fully understand what, what type of uh, financial instrument a mining machine really is, and in extension, what hash rate is. So, so and, and I want to comment a little bit on hash rate derivative, and also uh, there are just all these experiments, uh, attempts on creating hash rate derivatives. The, the, the complicated part with hash rate derivative is actually not technological, it's actually uh, creating such financial market behavior. And um, most of these new attempts, and, and, and this is definitely, definitely not a new thing. People have been thinking about that, you know, as early as 2015. And the reason that such kind of instrument never showed up is you can't get, other, you can't get someone to take the other side because the pricing is so complicated. Um, because for Bitcoin future, right, the underlying index is just the price. But with hash rate future, your underlying index is the hash rate. And what does hash rate mean in terms of price like th there's there's a there's, there's a variable that's dependent on another variable um and 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 when it comes to pricing this kind of esoteric options um you you need really sophisticated quant shop to 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 trade among each other right and and this is a game that's impossible to scale sure and uh you know my interpretation of hash rate derivatives is that um there's very few markets with such high levels of information asymmetry as well, um, which again ties into this idea of just being difficult to price. So for the Bitcoin futures market, you don't have a concentrated, or maybe you do, uh, some conspiracy theorists would suggest you do, but you don't have this concentrated group of agents that can kind of unilaterally um, manipulate the, the index price, right? Whereas with hash rate derivatives, we absolutely do. There's just four or five operations out in China who essentially can can uh, elevate or deprecate hash rate at any given time, right? So yeah, like 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 I said, it's a very it's a it's a game that nobody's going to take the other side. Sure. <laughs> and, and especially when when it comes to hash rate, it's something that if you talk to every manufacturers and if you have access to the people who are in charge of sales, you can calculate how many machines are going to 
come online in the next you know couple months. So you have a sense of how much hash rate is going to increase uh, f uh, during the duration of, of your bet. Um, whereas for Bitcoin future, it's obviously it's, it's more simplistic. Um, and coming back to your point on Bitcoin futures being less difficult to manipulate. Um, more difficult. To more difficult to manipulate, sorry. Um, uh, I've actually heard stories, um, this was during November to uh, February or March-ish, uh, when price was really, really low, but we saw a lot of volume going on uh, in the OTC space. So th th obviously this is a rumor, and I have you know no way of confirming that, especially now. There are a lot of large face-to-face um, -face transactions happen, happened in Hong Kong uh, or, part, uh, or Shanghai, uh, where miners will just... Uh, Put on a lot of short positions and just dump dump on the open market and uh, and then uh, arrange OTCs to buy back at a much cheaper price. So they make money on from you know the short positions and they make money on uh, you know price coming back. Yeah, up. price coming back. So so uh, so um, uh, at that time, ROTC have received a lot of like inbound request for hey, you guys want to do a big deal in Hong Kong face to face, but only cash. <laughs> um, and, Obviously, we've never done that, um, but that, that, that's just an interesting thing that we observed during that period of time. So another cycle that we see in the, in the mining space is the, these issuance cycles, and namely the halvening of block rewards on a uh, four-year basis. Um, Iterative put out some very interesting research projecting cost of production under various different assumptions. I'm just going to run through some of the numbers. So... Um, under the assumption that you're using the Watts Miner M20S um, at three cents per kilowatt hour, um, you'll see cost of production somewhere around uh, $7,000. I, I, I think that's under the assumption that uh, difficulty doubles and after the halvening, and then perhaps under a slightly more conservative seven cents per kilowatt hour, you're looking at cost of production closer to 17,000. So Bitcoin is currently trading just below 8,000. Um, considering these projections is now an especially good time to, to get into the mining industry. And how are you guys preparing for the next six months? Yeah, so I, um, I'd say those calculations are definitely done uh, as a snapshot. And obviously, mining industry is is heavily influenced by by the price, uh, despite you know a lot of people don't realize that because it seems like hash rate is moving independently from uh, uh, um, uh, to price. But there definitely there's definitely connection, and hash rate definitely follows price. But there's a huge delay because just you know because hardwares are they take time to manufacture and they take time to sell and they t definitely take time to get uh, up and running. So um, I think there are a lot of uncertainty around having even for miners and so people who deployed early this year they're definitely uh, especially people who uh, who bought a lot of cheap s nice before April the price jumped those people they have you know earned back their uh, principal many times over already so I think there are a good amount of people who are expecting to retire some of the s nice or just you know older generation machines around having because it is uh, your, your cost of production literally doubles after crossing that threshold. Um, so I, I think I think some the general narrative is that people who buy these uh, um, you know seven nanometer, ten nanometer machines, uh, they will be f they, they, these are machines that prepare you 
uh, through the next cycle, which is uh, uh, next April to October. And people who are operating uh, S9s or some of the, the more uh, less power efficient machines, uh, they will likely retire or transfer some of the machines to uh, people who have more resources. So it's hard to say whether uh, having is going to be have a very noticeable drastic effect on uh, hash rates. It really depends on where the price is. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so, so as someone operating in the mining industry, that, that you can't really say whether or not this will be bearish or bullish for your business or other miners in the space. It all depends on where the price goes. Yeah, so mining is actually a very, uh, it depends a lot on timing when you deploy. Uh, the best time to deploy is actually after, right after a market crash, a big market crash, actually. So because one thing people uh, who are outside of the mining business don't realize is that mining machines are incredible. The price of mining machines are incredibly volatile. And this is because mining machines are inherently a bivariate option. Uh, it's an it's a, it's a option that, that, uh, whose variables are price and hash rate. So the pricing of these options are, in, are extremely sensitive um, and, and almost impossible to price. So uh, most of the, uh, the market right now uses some very simplistic uh, metrics such as uh, static days to ROI, just number of days that you earn back your principal, but which is cl clearly a very flawed, a very naive way of uh, looking at the investment. Um, but overall, um, mining machines, they, their price fluctuates a lot, especially after a big market crash. The expectation is that, you know, um, it takes much longer for you to earn back your principal, and therefore a lot of machines, their price would drop as well. So those are the best time to you know approach mining manufacturers or uh, vendors of secondary machines to uh, to to acquire um, uh, the machines that people don't want. Sure. Um, so yeah, it seems it seems like a lot of these answers essentially come down to it depends in sure. a lot of ways. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but the trend itself is is fairly clear, which is that, uh, you know, assuming things stay relatively constant, minor revenue is going to fall over time, perhaps not over this next four-year cycle, but, you know, give it perhaps eight years or, or 12 years or 16 years. Um, the solution there, ostensibly, is the emergence of a healthy transaction fee market. Um, is this something that, that you're thinking about? And I guess a follow-up to that is, if we don't see the emergence of this transaction fee market, what are your preferred solutions as far as uh, maintaining some kind of constant revenue stream for miners? Is it uh, let's transition to proof of stake? Is it reintroduce steady uh, inflation, reappropriate some unmoved coins? Uh, how are you guys approaching this? Yeah, so I think uh, as money rewards diminishes, it, there will be more and more consolidation happening in the in the uh, in the industry. So I think it will. Definitely be, especially now that um, the iteration on the chips is becoming slower and slower. After a 10, 7 nanometer, it's going to be the longer and longer period before we the, the latest techno, such as 5 nanometer, is becomes available to uh, integrated circuit de designers. Um, so, so I think mining as a business is going to become more and more expensive to run and requires more and more financialization. Uh, what I mean by that is people will have to you know, manage their rewards in a much more careful way and manage their expenses in a much more careful way and manage ways to hedge in a much more uh, thoughtful uh, manner as opposed to you know, between 2013 to 2016, people are just you know, doing whatever because they're making so much money. So how, what, what are some new possible ways that a mining firm can hedge in that type of environment? 
Yeah, so there's um, a lot of talk about hash rate derivatives and. Haha. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so there, there's no real efficient way to actually hedge, and the best you can do is keep your expenses as low as possible. The best you can possible. do is cross your fingers and hope the best. Yeah, and for most people who who have been in the business for a while, their their cost base is so much lower than um, uh, than where the market is. So they, they're fine, you know. Um, so so really. Uh, it comes down to your discipline around selling the rewards to 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 make sure that you have enough uh, electricity so that you don't you don't scramble when price is too low and you oversell your number of coins. So the important thing is make sure you purchase the hardware at um, as low as possible price and you're managing your electricity, your ongoing expenses at the lowest possible cost. And when you rotate uh, some of the coins into fiat to pay for electricity, you're doing it in a relatively frictionless way. And obviously you can hedge with with uh, Bitcoin futures, but uh, the problem is, uh, the, the obviously volume is, is an issue. Um, I mean, the volume has been growing a lot in the past year, but uh, some of these exchanges that have the largest volume of um, these Bitcoin futures are not really trustworthy. Uh, so it's hard to scale. Um, so for really large scale miners, it's, it's the most important thing still is managing your expenses. I feel like the the trend, at least you know, layer one an announced a massive, uh, somewhat massive, I think, fifty million dollar fundraise at a two hundred million dollar valuation with some pretty significant backers. They're making a bet on Texas. There was a merger announced yesterday between two firms that, frankly, I had never heard of: Whitestone U.S. and Northern Bitcoin AG. Um, they're merging to set up in quotes, the largest Bitcoin mining facility worldwide. We'll see if that actually pans out to be true. If it's the largest, it's covering 100 acres of land, which is the equivalent to about 57 soccer fields. And that'll also be based in Texas. There's this trend that, you know, we're, we're moving to Texas now. Is this the new um, land of milk and honey for miners? Is this the promised land or are these firms misguided? Yeah, so first of all, everyone's building the largest ever facility on the planet. <laughs> everyone's doing We're that. We're building the largest <laughs> news and research site here at the block in oh, the no. world. I, I think that might happen. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so uh, U.S. Is there something to Texas is the, is the question. Oh, definitely. There, okay. There's a lot of cheap electricity in, uh, you know, United States has a lot of power. Um, and uh, and frankly, the, these uh, people are just beginning to realize that oh, okay, we can actually use this waste otherwise wasted electricity for uh, Bitcoin mining. Um, however, a lot of these uh, facilities uh, being advertised, they are not fully built. So we talked to a lot of these guys uh, actually since early last year. Uh, people would tell you, okay, we have a place, uh, you know, in a, this very remote location in West Texas or upstate New York, and we'll, we have sub 3 saying electricity, 40 megawatts ready available, and we can scale to 700 megawatt in, in a year and a half, something like that. But you start talking to them, tell, oh, actually, we don't even have a roof. You, you know, you need to put in 10 million first so that we can build a roof. Um, this happens so, so much, and, and this is really because um, Mining for North America is still relatively new, especially mining at scale. Uh, most people who are building these facilities, they are not miners themselves. 
So they, uh, you know, as opposed to in China where people who own facilities were miner first, and then they realize, okay, to fully capture this economic, we have to own my facility as well. Because once you own facility, you can use that facility or equity of that use uh, that facility as collateral to start borrowing fiat to buy, you know, uh, machines and just play that game again and again and again and scale from there. Uh, whereas here, the facility owners, they just want to, they see, you know, a lot of Bitcoin miners as suckers who will pay them a margin so for them to get rid of their electricity. So I think there's still a lot of work, a lot of infrastructure needs to build out uh, before we see uh, mining US uh, in North America truly flourish. I think that we have seen some big um, facilities popping up, uh, but I think, I think these are rare uh, or relatively fewer and they get to charge much higher price because there, uh, there are a few. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But we definitely see this trend, um, although how sustainable is a completely different question, especially, you know, manufacturers are all based in China and getting the machines here, which is obviously a lot of hassle, maintaining them is a lot of hassle. Um, so you, you have to make sure that your electricity is absolutely, absolutely dirt cheap and you're actually, and, and not to interrupt, but I feel mm -hmm. like that's the that's the trajectory we're going in, more so about how can we bring the electricity cost to as low as possible versus how can we get our machines to work at, at, as effectively and efficiently as possible. Um, but at the same time, I wonder how uh, things like um, maybe the trade war with China might imp impact some of these businesses, right? You have you know, layer one that is um, working with a certain type of, of, of chips, you know, silicon, um, which could become a casualty of this Trump trade war. Is that something you think about? Yeah, I mean, I, I am a Chinese national who lives in U.S. My parents are very concerned about my safety. Uh, are they really? <laughs> yeah, of course. Because they, you know, like, like people in U.S. who reads about these uh, draconian headlines about what's going on in China. Uh, my parents also read about these draconian stories about, you know, people's lives suffering in U.S. and racial war and all that stuff. But anyways, it, it's, just, it's just what we have to deal with or, you know, people like uh, expats have to deal with. Um, but just before taking this too far, um, so I, I think, I think the tariff on semiconductor industry is definitely going to have an impact on uh, importing miners. But you know, mining manufacturers are, are, have been working around this for quite some time. So, they are, so for instance, you know, Silicon's building an uh, assembly line in Canada, I believe. Uh, I think Bitmain definitely has that ambition. What's miners coming to US as well? The, the thing is, it doesn't matter where the IC is, the, sorry, the integrate, the, circuit is being uh, designed. I mean, you know, sorry, uh, layer one's ICs are, uh, are they, they use a, a Beijing-based design firm. And frankly, they, they should, because uh, at this point, starting a new design shop for <laughs> SHA-256 is it's just stupid, unless you're Intel. And uh, anyways, so there are certain advantages to where certain things get uh, uh, manufactured, and this is just, you know, basic econ. Um, so the way to get around uh, this tariff is just simply having the assembly, you know, built here, uh, and 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 the design still happen in Beijing or Shenzhen, because the actual taping of the chips, they're you know they're done by TSMC or Samsung, and these are Taiwanese or Korean companies. That's interesting. Yeah. Do you think um, some of Layer One's claims around? Um, 2.3, I think they're quoting 2.3 cents per kilowatt hour uh, 
called uh, El Paso-based operations. Do you think those estimates are realistic? We had one source who <laughs> described it as an utterly ridiculous estimate uh, and that their assumption relies on a price floor for unused renewable energy, equating that to a pipe dream. Where, where, where might you stand? Yeah, so so Alex uh, is actually a good friend of mine, so I'm I'm gonna be careful uh, on. <laughs> He's, and we're, we're we're nice, to Alex too. We wrote a great story about layer ones. Yeah, raise. yeah. So so I think that it's critical that sometimes. that price is definitely that raw uh, raw price is definitely uh, available. Um, the question is how much hidden cost or or, or you know cost that that needs to add up to uh, building out the infrastructure or or labor. Uh, these things are expensive, man. And will it always? Yeah. But will that price always be available at all times? And what happens if the people of El? I think that one's based in El Paso. Yes, are un unwilling to bear the costs that mining operation might place on the power grid. Yeah, so that, that's definitely something that we saw in uh, New York State uh, last year. Uh, you know, the locals they push back on uh, these monstrous operations. So I think I think there's a lot of negotiation that needs to be done uh, on the local level, which is another thing that um, it's much easier to do in China <laughs> than, than, than here, because you don't have to deal with uh, other people's opinions. Uh, but anyways, I, I think, I think 2.3 and 2 cent is not the most ridiculous thing I've heard. Uh, the, and, and obviously to your point, the sustainability of that and also uh, the hidden costs associated with that is going to have a very big impact on his business. Let's switch over to, to Canaan, which we did address very briefly at the beginning of the podcast. So they um, listed in the US today on the NASDAQ. I think it's currently trading slightly below its listing price of $9. Um, so Canaan is one of these OG ASIC manufacturers. Uh, in their IPO filing, the firm said it controlled 23.3% of the global Bitcoin mining machine market share in uh, half one 2019. So they raised 90 million, but they were initially looking to raise 400 million. Um, in Q2 of 2019, they, they actually lost $37 million. And I think they have roughly $39 million in, in cash left in the bank right now. Um, some estimates suggest that they actually need to raise on the order of two to four hundred million um, to actually, you know, maintain the operations. Um, do you think this this latest raise was born out of desperation, or was it more of a, uh, a opportunistic uh, thing? I think I think it's both. Um, so so. Uh, like 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 I said earlier, uh, this company has been preparing for IPO since 2015, and they deliberately structure their business uh, in a way to make sure that they're clean for for IPO. Uh, whereas you know Bitmain gets all these troubles because they, uh, you know, there's some messy stuff there, right? So even in 2015, um, Ng Zhang, the founder of the company, deliberately uh, chose to. Only accept fiat as payments, you know. Whereas uh, Bitmain accepts Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, everything. So the, the, this is this is uh, this is to make sure that their revenue is easy to to account and also uh, much cleaner uh, in, in, when, when the regulation becomes tighter. Um, so I'd say IPO is a big thing for them and a big milestone for the industry overall. Uh, but 
it's more symbolic than um, there's anything substantial there. I really don't think so. Why is it symbolic? <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't really think I don't really think this requires that much um, validation from equity investors. It's at this point, I think U.S. tech stock market is just as inflated as uh, cryptocurrency market <laughs> in terms of sentiment, not in terms of uh, uh, quantity. Um, and and when you say it's symbolic as well, perhaps also alluding to the size of the raise as well, $90 million isn't a, a huge amount of money in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I think, um, so for, for Canaan, their, their tech is definitely falling behind compared to Bitmain and What's Miner. Uh, so if they continue to focus on um, and obviously, they, they, their business is a little different. And the reason that most people have not heard of, uh, most people outside of the mining world have not heard of them is because they, they only sell, uh, for the longest time, they only sell chips, right? They sell chips directly to o other OEMs, then they package them until uh, a very strong competitor showed up in November 2013 um, that almost crushed them, and they decided to go back to uh, uh, selling shoeboxes uh, again. But anyways, now they're pivoting to uh, minor as well as just AI application uh, chips. So uh, I think their business is going to be very much focused on just being an IC designer uh, rather than a fully integrated cryptocurrency company. Um, so, so in a sense that it's, it's, not a, uh, it's not a full participant of the cryptocurrency industry despite that it has a huge uh, seat. Uh, and over time, I think I think it's influencing cryptocurrency mining space is going to wade compared to um, uh, Bitmain and some of the rising competitors. Sure. Why do you think they're so keen to list in the U.S.? That I'm not sure. <laughs> well, actually, when they when they first started, I think they they experimented with uh, listing Hong Kong or uh, Chinese mainland, uh, but uh, I, th I think those attempts all failed. Um, I, I don't know what's the specific consideration for listing U.S. Maybe it's, it's, it gives them certain kind of legitimacy um, so that they can brag to their parents. <laughs> so, so you think Canaan's problems aren't part of this natural mining cycle that we discussed earlier? It's more kind of fundamental issues with the way they're operating their business? So I, I just don't think Canaan uh, uh, is going to be a... 100% cryptocurrency company, uh, you know, going forward. And I, I think if they find more money in uh, selling AI chips, they're going to do that. Uh, let's touch on Bitmain briefly. There's been a lot going on behind the scenes. Uh, Jihan Wu and his co-founder, Mikri Zan, is that his name, um, were both ousted, and now Jihan is, is back. Mikri is still out. Do you have any insight as to what's going on behind the scenes there? I mean, I, I think I know uh, just just as much as you do. <laughs> um, the, this is obviously a very crazy story, and um, and their primary split is is that Mikri wanted to build uh, a IC company, just like you know, Ng Zhang from uh, Canaan. He wants he also just wants to sell uh, miners, and he wants to sell AI uh, chips, and he doesn't wa he wants to scale down on the influence on uh, on the cryptocurrency uh, community. He he didn't like the Bitcoin Cash idea at all. Well, it's not because of he thinks that it's a it's a terrible project. It's more because he 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 thinks it, it's it's a distraction from their primary business. And he thought that that entire thing was a mistake. For, um, and whereas uh, Jihan wants to be 
a player in cryptocurrency space. He, he wants to be a very powerful hand that drives the direction of community development and also how people think about cryptocurrency and, and its adoption. So that's, that's where their fundamental uh, split is. And over time, that problem became, uh, became more and more exaggerated, especially when the bear market comes. So uh, Jihan blamed Mikri. Uh, these, these are just the stories I, I read, right? Uh, and and um, Jihan blamed Mikri for not keeping up with the latest development and also just getting rid of uh, Yang Zuoxing, the founder of uh, What's Miner, because Dr. Yang used to uh, almost work at um, What's Miner. Sorry, uh, Bitmain. And at that time, he was he was asking for two percent equity, but Mikri only wanted to offer zero point five percent. And Dr. Yan was a little, you know, upset because because um, Mikri's female secretary gets more equity than he does. <laughs> so he left and started Watts Minor and became a very powerful competitor to uh, Bitmain. Um, and and so Jihan blamed all these eras and just not producing the best machines anymore. Um, and and Mikri blamed Jihan for getting too involved in the cryptocurrency space, which in his mind is unnecessary. Sure. And I can certainly sympathize with Mikri's objections if you look at Jihan's Bitcoin Cash. Yeah, that was a disaster. Uh, so so while you know, Jihan isn't at Bitmain, he's, he's also working on this new company, Matrix Port. Um, They're like an OTC play, right? OTC custody. I think the way I've been pitched Matrix Port is as a kind of fully integrated bank for miners. Maybe Leo has a different angle. What do you? There. What do you? What, yeah. What do you think of Matrix? It's a it's a service provider that um and the it's not it's not new. No, no. Um, in in various slices of Matrix. But we only have gotten so much information from from what they're doing. Yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not a you're not a of that. No, no, we actually, yeah, we don't see them anywhere. <laughs> but anyways, so I think I think um, lending is a very important part for miners, especially you know during uh, market down downturns. You don't want to oversell your coins to cover your obligations, right? So it would be nice to have a way to collateralize your Bitcoin and just get fiat so that you can get through that month. Um, so so this is a very necessary product and or slash services and they're definitely not the first people to to provide that uh, matrix port wants to provide it in scale because they know so many miners in this in the space and they're you know friends with a lot of uh, big guys um so they they have a vintage there but why haven't they achieved the same level of scale as some of the largest otc desks that 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 i think only shows that jihan's primary focus is not there Right. And now that he's been pulled back to Bitmain, uh, or he pulled himself back <laughs> into Bitmain, and he's going to have nasty, nasty uh, battles uh, for the next years to come, I, I think Matrix Port is going to be uh, less and less interesting um, as, as a player in the OTC custody space, unless they find someone incredible to continue to run their business. It's interesting that you say the focus is really on lending, because what that actually means is that all these miners are leveraging up uh, on their operations is yeah. there potential for us to see these deleveraging spirals if the price of bitcoin the price of this collateral continues to fall so when price is down you actually want to borrow right you want to use your bitcoin as collateral and just borrow fiat so that you don't sell too much of your uh 
uh, coins. Because because for 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 mining, the most important thing is to have a massive amount of coin count, and and ha having that is more important than you know anything else really. Uh, with that, with once you once you have amassed that, you can play a lot of different games. You can invest. You can you can you know uh, do all sorts of things. So my, so lending is is a long overdue. Uh, thing in a mining space, and like I said earlier, as mining becomes more and more difficult, as it requires more and more capital financialization, and be more careful with how you manage rewards, uh, is going to be the make or break of this industry for, for sure. sorry, players in this industry. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I see the appeal of, of, of borrowing when price is down. The problem mm -hmm. is that price can continue to go down. And, yeah, and I mean, it's it's, uh, it's something that's very hard to quantify because you re require so many variables to have a uh, full calculation on where the threshold is. Like, I can't answer on top of my head that, oh, if price dips below $2,000, then this thing fails. Um, not a human calculator, despite my Asianness. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this business will continue to grow. <laughs> it will continue to grow. Um, and some of the less uh, people who are less less uh, sorry lenders who are less uh, sophisticated when it comes to risk management will suffer as well as their clients so we already have fairly sophisticated market structure on the lending side and on the custody side here in the United States um, do you think matrix port and and their eventual competitors opportunity is the fact that there's this distrust uh, between these Chinese-based operations and some of these U.S.-located institutions? So I think the biggest uh, demand for this kind of services come from China, right? And what the kind of fiat they require is RMB instead of uh, USD. So uh, services like Matrix Port and their competitors in China, um, they benefit from having, you know, accessibility to uh, a lot of miners. But here, I don't really know what their natural, who their natural clients are, other than some of the quant shops who wants to trade very sophisticated strategies and need to borrow Bitcoin for a short amount of time. So we definitely saw a lot of uh, lending uh, or just general finance companies in cryptocurrency space popping up, especially at the beginning of this year. Uh, BlockFi, Celsius, all these guys. There's just too many of these guys. Well, I mean, and, it, sorry. Not, yeah. and, and I don't know how they make their money. Well, you raise a really good question. There was a good article in Bloomberg that said that sort of touched on whether or not there's a mounting crypto credit bubble and whether or not there are too many players in the space. You have $5 billion worth of originations. They estimate up from essentially zero two years ago um, with players like Genesis. You mentioned BlockFi. You mentioned Celsius. Uh, there's Drawbridge out in Chicago. Block, Blockchain.com in London, we've learned has done hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, of lending, um, and their book is growing and growing. Um, and so there is a concern, right? And with many of those folks on the other side being miners, is there this potentiality for a, uh, a bubble pop? Um, and what would that mean for the space? So I think uh, when a bubble pops is when either these, these, these guys, they can't continue uh, with the narrative and, you know, venture capital backholders can't, uh, they, they realize, oh, there's not much going on here, and this is a re direct result of not being able to find clients. Um, so if the, the problem with these lenders who showed up here uh, in such short amount of time in the past year is that they developed this business before finding 
a continuous uh, source of natural clients. And I don't know how much appetite do these quant shops who need to borrow bitcoins uh, actually is, uh, because that here in Chicago, that's that's the that's the only, you know, natural uh, clients of of this kind of business. So so uh, just to come back to your question, I th I think uh, this this comes down to you know whether miners can really build up a, a presence here in before uh, these lenders run out of venture capital money to raise from. Let's switch over briefly to Lightning. So uh, Iterative just recently launched the Asher app, uh, which from my understanding is a fiat on-ramp for Lightning Network. Uh, maybe you can tell us a bit more about what you guys are doing there. Yeah, so we've been thinking about Azure for a long time. Um, and what and, and we have gone through several iterations before finally releasing the product. Um, uh, the Lightning Conference in Berlin uh, in October. So um, one thing that, that's been uh, very interesting to us in the Bitcoin space is, so we see Bitcoin as a uh, superior settlement network compared to some of the traditional settlement network. And the reason is because a lot of the, uh, a, a lot of the applications that have been built on something like Fetwire, they, are all, they all extract rent on every single layer. So even though the volume on, that's being done on Fetwire is so huge, uh, it's not necessarily cheap or it's certainly not necessarily fast. So Bitcoin has, has this very nice feature where uh, just by being a miner, you can be a participant in the economies of this uh, settlement network, and this come back to a question that you had earlier, which I, I don't, I think we digress, is um, how does the fee market develop on Bitcoin? Because the fee market, in order for it to truly develop, it has to capture all the economy that's done uh, on top of the settlement network and settlement system. Um, and, and, and obviously, there's nobody has a crystal ball on how this fee market is going to develop, but certainly requires people to build real services and uh, real demand that that can you know uh, flow through to the miners um, so that's that's how it becomes sustainable but whether it can be done uh, on time that's a completely different question um, anyways just to come back to this so so Azure is a uh, instant BTC to USD settlement and uh, it's a it's it's a set of SDK where wallet developers can just grab and integrate into their wallet, or uh, Bitcoin payment service providers can just grab and use use it as a on ramp and off ramp. So wallet, uh, especially free and open source, uh, uh, you know, wallet they, they really don't have a revenue uh, stream, right? And and some of these wallets are very very nice, but the way that people use these wallets are uh, either they buy from Coinbase or some large OTC desk, they go through uh, all that painful processes, or just miners, um, and then move their coins to their favorite wallet. So th this process can be compressed uh, significantly. And so we want to offer um, you know, wallet users a way to uh, access that on-ramp and off-ramp within their uh, application. And so, so one thing that we that we I think we've done particularly well is that on, actually on the USD settlement side, we can make it actually instant. And obviously, with BTC settlement side, we will have to rely on uh, Lightning. So, who's actually providing the fiat within this transaction? Are you making that market yourselves? Yes, our OTC desk. Okay, great. 
And what yeah. kind of fees are you charging? So uh, we're not charging fees. It's actually. just a spread. Yes, yes. So so we've been uh, thinking about something like this for a long time, and uh, we have been consciously and unconsciously planning our business uh, run uh, towards this direction. And we, we realized, you know, to actually make the stripe for cryptocurrency payments, um, you have to bootstrap from somewhere else. You can't just keep raising venture capital money. Uh, you have to have uh, a piece that solves your, your Forex, right? And in this case, is have an OTC desk that you plugged in and you trust, you manage, and we decide to build that ourselves. Sure. So it's interesting. Um, you've said earlier that the, the best time to deploy a mining operation is at the bottom. Um, if you look at the Lightning, Lightning Network network capacity, uh, I think back in July, network capacity was around $12 million. Today, it's somewhere close to $7 million. Do you think the best time to deploy a Lightning Network type application is also at the bottom of that? Uh, so I think when it comes to deploying Lightning Network applications, it's 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 more it's it's less sensitive to where the price is, and obviously everything in the space is is uh, in, indirectly and directly influenced by price. But I think it really has more to do with the fundamental uh, events uh, events in you know Lightning as a technology. I think in the past year we've seen a lot of very good progress uh, in the space because uh, at the end of the day. Lightning is still a very new thing, and there are a lot of risks associated with it. And people who uh, either invest or, or build business on it have to be, you know, very careful uh, and have to start with smaller scale. So I'm really not concerned about Lightning uh, channel capacity just going from 12 million to 7 million. I think I think the general trend is still increasing. We definitely see more and more developers coming to the space and building on top of uh, um, Lightning. So I think everything is moving towards the right direction. Why do you think there's an appetite to transact in a volatile medium of exchange versus something like a stablecoin? And we're starting to see some Lightning-type equivalents emerge on Ethereum, I'm thinking specifically projects like Connects that offer similar payment channel solutions but use DAI stablecoin as the primary medium of exchange. Yeah, so I think stablecoin doesn't quite solve a fundamental uh, issue where, and this is obviously a very old discussion. Um, and I think you know, Bitcoin as a very superior uh, settlement network has all the characteristics that you know a regular stablecoins don't have, uh, or just you know stablecoin that's been uh, uh, set up by a centralized entity. So, so all these arguments are that why Bitcoin is Bitcoin is is pretty you know well understood, um, but come back to uh, why such uh, why people would transact on this volatile network right this this is definitely a friction and the way that we want to uh, at least our approach to sol solving or or help with this friction is by making sure that uh, the transfiguration from USD to BTC and BTC back to USD is as fast and frictionless as possible so that commerces that you know rely, who may want to use BTC as payment rail can go in and out of USD to BTC very quickly so they to them uh, hopefully obviously this is a uh, this is going to take so, several years uh, before this becomes a uh, comfortable infrastructure for for this type of commerces um, but for them hopefully the experience is so flawless that they don't even realize they're transacting uh, on top of BTC. But at the same time, they get all the benefits of using B BTC as a settlement network as well as to a Fedwire. If they're eventually just transitioning back into fiat, 
what exactly are these advantages that Bitcoin as a settlement network? So, um, yeah, so, so, so some business, uh, and obviously this is, um, and I think we're just touching a tip, the tip of the iceberg here, in my own imagination, is not expensive enough to even cover the wide variety of possibilities of uh, type of business that can be built on uh, Lightning Network. So, so one interesting, what we have started to see some of the prototypes of several uh, uh, directions, right? You can, uh, digital paywall is definitely one thing. Uh, E-commerce is, is another thing. Um, and just, you know, uh, there's a shitcoin called Basic Attention Token that was uh, all the hype several years ago. Uh, so I think what they're trying to do is, uh, is right. Um, but this can be done much better on Lightning. So uh, stuff like that and also, um, in more in the meat space, commerces that have trouble getting uh, banking on the federal level, uh, you know, namely uh, marijuana businesses, they're you know they're perfectly okay on state level, but they can't. They're still using cash as primary means of transaction. So for these people, b having their their transactions being denominated in USD, they think about their accounting and everything still in USD terms. But at the same time, they can you know accept transactions in uh, BTC is. Is a good way to solve their solution to having to uh, have bodyguards guard their, you know, boxes of cash. Are you guys at all exposed to some of that regulatory risk as the the ones kind of settling the, these transactions? So for that, I'm just talking about. Uh, I'm just, you know, it's just an example. Right? We're not. Um, you but know, that is also the, to... the the available addressable market right now, right? It's yeah, it's it's just it's one of the addressable markets. Regulatory grain. Yeah. Sure. And um, you were telling me earlier that Iterative is actually allocating a lot of resources internally to the Azure project. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think for us, this is um, the thing to build. I think uh, in order to, for Bitcoin to truly become usable by commerce, um, there needs to, the on-ramp and off-ramp needs to be solved. Um, and, and by solved, I mean it, the experience has to be as it has to be as frictionless as possible. And right now, you know, all the on-ramp options are more or less uh, restrictive. Either they have large spread or they have fees or it takes forever for you to withdraw. And sometimes you don't, you can't withdraw at all. Um, so right now, I think up to this point, Bitcoin is very much dominated by the supply side. And the supply side, by supply side, I mean the miners, right? They, they these people, they amass a large amount of coins. Um, and, and they they do whatever they want with the rest of the market. Uh, so so uh, in order for the demand side to really match, the the user experience has to be very easy and very easy to uh, for traditional commerces or new type of commerces to to use uh, this as a settlement network. Um, so uh, solving solving the on ramp uh, off ramp piece, we we at least we think is is a priority, and that's something that we want to uh, address. And, and I think um, developing supply side first is very common for uh, commodity business. If you look at you know oil industry, especially in the early 1800s, that's exactly how it was developed as well. Uh, people were expecting this to be you know a replacement of uh, sorry oil as a replacement to whale fat, right? Um, they would discard. Uh, diesel and gasoline just to keep that kerosene. <laughs> so, and, and obviously that changed very drastically over time as uh, more 
applications of oil, such as you know automobile, automobile uh, show up. Uh, so I think for a commodity like Bitcoin, uh, we'll probably see a very similar pattern as well. We'll see uh, some more very novel uh, applications uh, of new type of digital commerces, or even just um, uh, some of the traditional businesses will benefit from having uh, BTC as a settlement network uh, show up and be the automobile of uh, Bitcoin. Fascinating. I think it'd be worthwhile to just talk a little bit about you for a second. Um, you have a very interesting history in, in traditional financial markets. Um, Sequoia Capital China, you're an equities derivatives analyst at Morgan Stanley. Walk us through a little bit about your background and you found, how you found your way to not only iterative capital, but cryptocurrency as well. What's your rabbit hole story? Uh, like, like I mentioned earlier, I, I was born and raised in China. I spent most of my time in, uh, you know, early days in China, went through a very traditional Chinese education system. Um, and I came to U.S. for college. Uh, I studied mathematics in, in school. Um, so I, I think the first time I started looking at Bitcoin seriously, it was 2014. I had this really annoying VC friend uh, who just kept talking about it. I was like, okay, I'll take a look. <laughs> and, and I was absolutely fascinated. <laughs> There's Dan Moorhead. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and well, he he this this kid now moved on to to build some uh, VR applications. But anyways, that that's beside the point. Um, and and at, at that time, even you know people like Myron Shows, the Myron Shows of Black Shows, um, were started talking about digital currencies. So so I realized that that was this is definitely not just an elegant uh, theoretical design. There's there's definitely something more substantial there. Um, so I was sort of, you know, tricked into joining Morgan Stanley full time because I had an amazing summer internship in my junior year, and my boss on that uh, that team told me this is the best job in the world, and and, and so I just, you know, returned for full time, and, and um, during my time at Morgan Stanley, I just continued to pay attention to Bitcoin, and my interest grew. Uh, I started going to meetups and started talking to people in the space, and I think around 2016, I realized, oh, I I have to do this full time. Uh, so I started looking for opportunities in the space. There are not many jobs that um, fit my interests or would sponsor Visa. <laughs> um, in 2017, someone introduced me to uh, Chris Denon at Iterative. So we had a breakfast and the conversation was very uh, pleasant. I realized um, a lot of the things, we, how we think about the space, uh, you know, more or less on the same uh, frequency, uh, uh, frequency, wavelength. Sorry. And I'm not a native English speaker. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's my deep voice. And, and so we started discussing the possibility of working, I mean, working full time. Uh, so I joined the firm as the first employee. Uh, we, there were three of us at that time, and we gradually grew uh, from there. And is there any way you can help us understand the size and scale of editor for people who haven't heard of it? Cause you, because you guys do uh, fly a little bit under the radar and keep a more low-key... Presence. Is there a reason for that, just to sort of have the allure and the sex appeal of being a little more? I think we're just not very uh, conscious about marketing. <laughs> 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 That's the truth. <laughs> and, 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 and frankly, I, I think um, we, cause, because of the, the direction that we took, uh, in a, we chose to focus on mining space instead of you know, a VC. We didn't think we have that much to show to the public until Azure. I was ready for um, uh, for the rest of the world. 
So we definitely want to, we're definitely going to become more public um, uh, in order to, to make sure that Azure gets in front of everyone's um, uh, attention. But I think mining, there's really not much to, to show. Is Azure something that you would like to raise external capital for, or will that be fully self-funded? So um, we've, we've, we, funded our, we funded it ourselves in the beginning. Um, but gradually, as this thing scale, we definitely would love to have some uh, strategic capital or just partners who can offer us resources to help us grow, uh, to come in sure. to our cap and, table. And for the mining operations as well, is that structured as a fund with LPs, or did you just completely do away with the fund structure and it's more of a standard equity type? Yeah, so we actually have experimented with both structure. Uh, a hedge fund structure uh, with quarterly subscription, as well as um, you know the typical LSC that people invest in equity. So we're still weighing the pros and cons of each uh, structure, and there are definitely some nice thing with the fund structure, and there's definitely uh, more convenient things with the LSC structure where people just you know uh, uh, investing equity. Um, so so in the future, I think it really depends on the timing and also the environment at a time when we raise for the next fund. Sure. One final question that I wanted to ask you. We're starting to see more and more players emerge in the uh, validation, staking as a service space. Um, even funds like Polychain have this, this vehicle, Polychain Labs, where they serve as validators and delegates within some of these networks. Um, I understand that the operations are fairly different and the way in which you build an edge um, it's certainly different as well, but is that something that you guys are looking at at all, or there's absolutely no interest to participate on that side? And why is that? Yeah, so at the current point, there's absolutely no interest. <laughs> uh, and and so for personally, uh, I just you know speak for myself. I don't have a you know particular problems with uh, proof of stake other than it's just not proven by uh, the, I, I'm aware that there are a lot of things with pure proof of stake that just stay uh, not proven as, especially at scale um, so so for me it's just really just uh, the timing is not right and I know there are a lot of variations of proof of stake that's showing up to the market that are really just DPoS uh, which I don't think is um, for, which I don't think it carries the appeal of a true cryptocurrency as a settlement uh, uh, system. Sure. So but there is money to be made there, clearly. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Just you have to be an insider. Sure. <laughs> so it's uh, so it's 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 more a function of you guys not having the the inside knowledge to operate in that space, rather than ideological leanings. I think a lot of people think they're would like to think they're insiders, but they're more always, you know, another insider who's more inside. So than who are you the are. insiders? Uh, I mean, depends on the project, right? In EOS, I mean, obviously we know who <laughs> insiders are. Uh, Ethereum, I think to a lesser extent, but they're definitely there. Uh, Bitcoin, even to a lesser and lesser extent, but they're definitely, definitely there. Um, so I think it, it really, they're really in a commodity business. There are two ways of. Uh, Making money. One is in a commodity that's uh, a commodity game that's very fair, open. Uh, something that Bitcoin is approaching. Uh, obviously, Bitcoin is still not perfect yet in terms of the number of whales that's that's playing, sloshing the market around. But it's 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 relatively the most fair um, uh, commodity game compared to the other ones. Uh, so in this game, you can start building. You know, you can building applications, service being a service provider that uh, help people. Uh, 
getting onto this onboarding and using this kind of system and in turn you get compensated alternatively you can be the sole dominant player in on the network and just corner the market um, and uh, this this is this type of game is pretty well understood by commodity traders for you know uh, decades um, so if you can't really be uh, make sure that you're the dominant player on that cryptocurrency network uh, you you might as well just don't play interesting well leo zhang we appreciate you so much for coming on to the show leo zhang ladies and gentlemen research lead at iterative capital the man the myth the miner and the legend i finished my whiskey we finished the podcast and i almost finished my coffee and we'll see you guys next time thanks so much Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code it's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy.